Okay, so today uh, we'll be discussing chapter 16 of the book of Judges. Uh, Chapter 16. And this is the story of Samson and Delilah. Some of you may be familiar with the events that go on in this story. And I divided this chapter into three points, as usual. Uh, And you'll see on the handout uh, the three points. The first one is the tragedy of God's servant. The second point is the true source of strength. And the third one is the nearness of God's help. Okay, so uh, going with the first point, let's start by looking at the passage in Scripture, starting with uh, verses 1 to 3. So if I, if I can have someone read Judges 16, 1 through 3. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So I want to start by pointing out that there are some changes that we see throughout the story of Samson, right? We've been um, looking at this story beginning with chapter 14, and now we're at 16. But there's a contrast that is formed in this chapter in comparison to the previous two chapters. You'll notice that in chapters 14 through 15, there are references of the spirit of the Lord empowering Samson. Um, here, here's some passages here, starting with verse, I'm sorry, starting with chapter 14, verse 6, you'll see here, it says, then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion into pieces, as one tears a young goat, but he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. So you see a reference of the spirit of the Lord rushing upon Samson. Here's another one. Verse 19 of chapter 14. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave their garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. And then another one, following chapter, says, When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arm became his flax that, was caught, that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. So you see these references of the Spirit of the Lord coming upon him and, and sort of using him and empowering him. Now it's true that the Spirit of the Lord is also mentioned in connection with other judges, um, but only once in most of their cases. However, in this particular story, Uh, There is a special emphasis when the Spirit of the Lord falls on Samson. Now in chapter 16, there is no mention of the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon him. Right? That stops. The point that we ought to acknowledge in in this uh, contrast uh, is that it closes, or each chapter closes, with uh, Samson being dependent and sustained by the Lord. You see that in uh, chapter 15, 18 through 19. Whereas in chapter 16, 
at least until verse 21, we have Samson being self-sufficient and deserted by God, of course, until the end where he cries out to God for help. Um, So many commentators would say that there's a deliberate contrast between the former and the latter versions of Samson. The climax of both is somewhat opposed. We start with God sustaining a seeking Samson and end with God abandoning a self-sufficient Samson. Chapter 16 seems to depict a Samson without, a, without the spirit, so to speak, in comparison to the previous chapters. And we see that this contrast, you, you see this contrast right from the beginning of chapter 16, as we um, just read uh, the beginning of the story. This episode begins with Samson in Gaza, which one would wonder, what was Samson doing 45 miles from his home between Zorah and Eshtoal? in the southernmost city of the Philistine Pentopolis. What was he doing out there? Why was he making his way out there uh, where he was at? The scriptures doesn't really tell us what brought him there, but it clearly tells us what made him stay there, right? We see from verse 1, it says that there, there he saw a prostitute and he went into her. So, you know, he's in this place and uh, right away, the story begins with him and a prostitute. Throughout the story of Samson, we can already see that he, has, that he was lust-driven when it came to women. Chapter 14 tells a lot about his character. We see uh, his interest in the Philistine, women, uh, Philistine woman, and his father tries to convince him that he should seek an Israelite woman, but Samson simply says, get her for me, for she's right in my eyes. And this is significant because this was a pagan woman, as if, you know, in our context, uh, we were to marry someone from another faith. But Samson wanted her, and uh, we see that God, even though he, he was lust-driven, uh, we see that God was still working out his plan through Samson regardless. Now the story continues in verse 2, and here we see that the people of Gaza found out that Samson was in town, and decided to surround the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till morning, then we will kill him. Now somehow, Samson's reputation spread deeply through Gaza and the Philistine cities. It it obviously wasn't a good reputation, but one that would cause the Gazites to set a plot to kill him. I would imagine that the stories of Samson tearing up a lion was caused a threat. You know, that was something that uh, caused this threat, this bad reputation. Or better yet, the incident when Samson went down to Ascalon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave their garments to those who solved his riddle. Or when Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set the fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into uh, into standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grains and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. And when the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. Another contribution to his bad reputation, 
is when he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it and struck a thousand Philistine men. So with that kind of reputation, we can easily see that Samson was an enemy to the Philistines. And likewise, the Philistines were an enemy to the Israelites, being that they ruled over them. But through it all, God was using Samson to accomplish his will for Israel. As tragic as his life and story is, God was still using him to accomplish the goals that God had. Continuing on, we see that the Gazites plan to kill Samson in the morning, but Samson heads out in, the, in midnight, right? He leaves early. In ver, uh, we see in verse 3, it says, He arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. So here we see Samson exercising his strength by forcing his way out of the city by physically pulling out the doors of the city gates and running off with them. Now this verse is interesting. Considering the nature of the city gate structures in ancient Palestine. Okay, so right by the city gate, there would have been houses next to the city gate, right, which were like gate stations. And... and, uh, it would have been about two or three stories high with guard rooms by the entrance. So first of all, to get to the city gate, Samson would have had to get past about five or six group of guards stationed in these guard rooms. So how did he do it? Uh, how was he able to get past the guard stations? Did the men posted simply doze off? You would think that the noise of the gates being ripped open would have woken them up. But the scriptures does not tell us how that happened. It just tells us that that's what happened. And it can often be difficult when considering why God would allow Samson to escape without being captured by the Philistines. Since he hasn't been such a moral person. Yet it wasn't God's plan. He went through, he ripped the city gates open and he kept going. But why would God allow Samson to escape in such a way without getting caught? Uh, Especially since Samson hasn't been such a moral person. I know that was a big question last week, right? We were sort of discussing and interacting with some people about, uh, you know, how is it in God's plan and how how is it working out in God's plan if someone was not... uh, you know, living morally? How was God using someone that uh, was living immoral, in a sense? We'll, we'll, we'll cover that. But a couple things to keep in mind. Uh, we must conclude that even though Samson has not remained pure as a Nazarite, and we see him act in ways that were morally wrong, God was still in control, and his providence allowed these events to happen in according to his purpose. Or purposes. God was and has always been working out his plan in accordance to his purposes, which he has determined before the world was made. And his plans are beyond our moral performances. They're ultimately for the sake of his glory. And here's what we often forget. That God can and will get his glory through those who are obedient, but also from those who are not obedient. Right? No one will rob God from his glory. 
He will get it, even if you're a bad person. Look at Romans 9, 22 to 23, for example. Can someone read that passage there? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared before him for glory? Amen. So, key verse there, uh, 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Now, this is not to say that Samson was a vessel of wrath, right? It is clear that God has specifically chosen him for his task, and it's evident that God's spirit used him in many incidences. But we see in Romans 9 that if God can get glory out of his enemies, he can surely get glory from sinners like Samson and like you and I, right? And this is what we see with Samson. Now let's look at point number two in the uh, paper. Point number two is the true source of strength. <clears throat> so just moving along with the story, we get into the story of Samson and Delilah. Let's look at uh, 4 through 22. Actually, can we, can we split some of this? Um, let me have someone uh, take verses 4 through 9. Thank you, Jay. Someone take 10 through 17. Who would like that one? Thank you. And someone read 18 through 20. We'll stop at 20. Thank you. Okay. So Judges 16, 4, all the way through 20. <clears throat> Who has 4 through 9? Thanks, Jay. After this, she loved a woman in the valley of Shoreh, whose name was Delilah. And the Lord of the Philistines came to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Goliath said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies, and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. But Samson said to her, if they bind you with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other one. And then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in the inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps that touches the fire, so the secret of his strength was not Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they buy, if they buy me with new robes, said, So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them 
Okay, so here we have Samson, <clears throat> once again, finding interest in another woman. And for the first time in Samson's story, the woman is named, right? And some commentaries have suggested that her name is significant, right? The Arab word, Dala, means to flirt. And the D with the Lyle, right, Delilah, may mean of the night. And as consistent as that may be with the narrative, it's it still isn't sure that the name has anything to do with anything. Uh, it may simply be a uh, Philistine name. Therefore, I don't want to look too deep into the name. However, the location of the Valley of Sor Sorek signifies that she wasn't an Israelite, right? Now, continue on, we see that she had made a deal with the lords of the Philistines, which were the governors of the Philistines, for 1,100 pieces of silver from each lord if she could only seduce Samson into revealing where his strength came from so that they would be able to effectively capture him. So motivated by the reward, she agrees to cooperate with them in capturing Samson. And what we have afterwards is a series of attempts in trying to get his secret and to capture him. Now, the repeated attempts show that either Delilah really, really had a hold on Samson's heart or that Samson was not bright enough to su suspect that she was out to get him. However, it did take a few shots before he finally caved in towards the end, right? In the first attempt, we see in verses 6 to 9, she questions him concerning his strength, and he replies with saying that he would become weak if he is bound by seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried. Now, what's interesting here is that bowstrings were basically tendons from a freshly slaughtered animal which had not yet been dried up. Now we know that Samson was a Nazarite and was not allowed to touch a dead animal or carcass of any kind because that would make him unclean and would ruin his vow to be set apart and devoted to God. But here, like many other times, we see, uh, especially his reply to Delilah, how he's trivialized his Nazarite vow, right? He says, look, this is, this is one way to, that, that would uh, get me to be weak, right? This is one way that you can capture me. 
by tying me up with tendons from a freshly slaughtered animal. So again, his reply is just a sign that he's trivialized his vow. He's done it before, right, in chapter 15 when he picked up a fresh jawbone in the fight with the Philistines or when he took honey from a dead lion's corpse. So again, he's not taking his vow seriously. In the second attempt, which is verses 10 through 12, he lies to Delilah by saying that the new ropes would make him weak if he was bound with with new ropes. But he, again, just like the other uh, examples, he snaps out of it uh, and it's ineffective. And in the third attempt, which is 13 through 14, Samson lies again and says that if, he, if she weaves his seven locks and fastens it, fastens it tight, he would become weak. And now here, Samson is, is, is getting close to the source of uh, his weakness, per se. Um, he's playing with fire since his hair represents the key to Samson's riddle. However, again, it is a failed attempt when Samson simply pulls out the pin of his hair and his hair is free um, and he's not weak or he's not weakened. Now notice how Delilah flips the script in each attempt by appealing to his guilt. Each time she would say things like, you have mocked me and told me lies. And before the last attempt, she says, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? Uh, Verse 16 says that she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, and his soul was vexed to death. This goes to show the power of Delilah with her words and also Samson's weakness with the words of his woman. Now, even though Samson was known for ripping a lion up with his bare hands, Delilah was ripping his soul with her bare words to the point that it says his soul was vexed to death. And so here we see that uh, in verse 17, he confesses his hair to be the source of his strength. He breaks. Now, this may sound a bit superstitious, right? His hair being the source of his strength. But as a Nazarite, one who was separated for God since before he was born, Each of the terms of the vow signified a devotion to be set apart to the Lord. And as I mentioned earlier, we see a contrast from a Samson that was dependent on God, progressively changing into a Samson that now became self-sufficient and no longer called on God throughout that whole chapter. In fact, in verse 17, Samson refers to the Lord as Elohim. That's the word used for Lord there. Um, he, he refers to the Lord as Elohim rather than the name of Yahweh, which he normally previously used. And the fact that he would use Elohim, or which, which is a general term speaking about God or the God, the fact that he would use general terms when speaking about the Lord might signify his relationship to the Lord at this point, might, might say something about his relationship with the Lord at this point. Therefore, we have a Samson who at this point has not taken his vow seriously and has abandoned what may be one of his last terms left as a Nazarite, uh, under the Nazarite vow. And as the story goes on, we see in verse 19 that Delilah calls on the Philistines while he's asleep and they shave off his hair. And his strength does leave him. It actually does. 
Now, verse 20 is important because here we read, and I want you to read it here on the screen. Verse 20 says, And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I'll go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know, this is important here, he did not know that the Lord had left him. That's important because here we see that the, the real reason for the loss of his strength was not ultimately because of loss of hair, but rather because the Lord had left him. And although the cutting of his hair as a violation of the, law, uh, of the vow that he has made may have signified that uh, closeness with God, the true source of his strength came from God, not his hair. And at this point, it, it, it had departed him. This, his strength has, depart, has departed from him specifically because the Lord has departed from him. The Lord had left. And you see that there at the end of verse 20. So again, the strength, the source of his strength was the Lord himself. Now, looking at uh, point three called the nearness of God's help. Let's read the remainder verses. Uh, can someone take 21 through 27? Thanks, Ron. And then 28 through 31, can someone take that? Thanks, Forrest. Then Samson called to the Lord, saying, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray. Just this once, O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines from my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars which supported the temple, and he braced himself against them, one on his right and the other on his left. Then Samson said, Let me die with the, the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might, and the temple fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So the dead that he killed at his death were more than he killed in his life. And his brothers and his father's household came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtal in the tomb of his father Manoah. He had judged Israel 20 years. Thank you. So here we see that the Philistines seize him, right? They gouge out his eyes and they bring him down to Gaza and bind him with bronze shackles where he works the ground at the mill in prison. 
And then what, what you then see is this praise from the Philistines, almost as a liturgical chant. They begin to say collectively, almost like what we do here in worship. Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. Now the God that they are referring to here, who, whom they're praising and calling upon and chanting, is a false god called Dagon, or Dagon. According to history, uh, Dagon was the chief deity of the Philistines, and the worship of this pagan god dates back, the thir- uh, back all the way to the third millennium BC. And according to ancient mythology, Dagon was the father of Baal. He was the fish god, right? Dag in Hebrew means fish. And he was represented as a half-man, half-fish creature. And this image uh, furthered an evolutionary belief that both man and fish had evolved together from the primal waters. Dagon may also have been the provider of grain. So Dagon was similar to many other idols during that time uh, that personified natural forces that had supposedly produced all things. And that was sort of the way that they came up with their idols. And we see a reference to Dagon in 1 Samuel 5, 2-5, where the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it next to the idol Dagon. And you know what happened? When they put the idol Dagon, or when they put the Ark of the Covenant next to the idol Dagon, the next day the idol Dagon was found fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord, and its head and hands were cut off, as to say, this is an unworthy uh, God before the true God. Uh, this is our God. You know, this is how he responds. And this God, Dagon, this is who the Philistines praise when they captured Samson. So they then call Samson out to entertain them. And we we see in verse 28 where Samson, for the first time throughout this chapter, finally calls upon the Lord. And he says, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. So we've seen in the previous chapters that God is a God who hears the cry of his servant in desperate circumstances. Yet there's a difference in this chapter. Here, God answer, God's answer comes not only in the midst of desperate need, but in the wake of miserable failure. Remember that this is the Samson who would rather play around with Delilah than protect his vow with God. This was the Samson who faithlessly bartered away God's strength in order to court a treacherous lover. It is this Samson who God decides to hear his cry. And in the midst of his failures, God hears him out. And we see in the following verse that God responds, allowing Samson one final strike against the Philistines. Samson leans with all his strength and the house fell upon all of them, including Samson himself. So we see that even though the story ends tragically, God still accomplishes what he planned by allowing Samson, right, to rule the 20 years that he did, 
and also to defeat the Philistines in the end. So what's the point of this story? What's the point of all this? Why would God highlight this event as a major part of right, our sacred scripture? Why is it a big deal? And again, the Israelites would have known this story, looking back in their own history. Why did they need to hear about the story of Samson? Here's a quote from a commentator on, on this passage. He says, and I quote, Samson was intended as a mirror to Israel. In Samson, Israel was to see herself. Just like, as in Luke 15, Jesus wanted the Pharisees and the scribes to see themselves in the older son in the parable of the prodigal son. Likewise, Samson is a paradigm of Israel. One raised up out of nothing, richly gifted, yet who ponders around with other loves, and yet apparently always expects to have God. So Israel has received grace on top of grace, and yet persistently carries on her affairs with Baal. Utterly ignorant of her true condition, blithely assuming that all is well and that God is always at her disposal. Now this quote explains how Israel was to see the story of Samson. Right? They, they ought to identify themselves with Samson himself. But furthermore, Samson's story should also have communicated a sense of hope. This should, have, this should have seen, or they should have seen, that even though God's hand may justly cast down his unfaithful servant, his ears are nevertheless open to their cries and his arm still ready to act on their behalf. That even in their sinfulness, God was still encouraging Israel, like what we read in Psalm 50, 15, to call upon him in the day of trouble. And I think we can identify with that too as well. Us as sinners, um, you know, God, uh, Israel should have seen themselves as sinners saved by grace. Likewise, us, sinners saved by grace, we, we, we still have this command that we read in Psalm to call upon him in the day of trouble. And our God always responds. This truly speaks to the nearness of God's help. Samson was not too far from the Lord's reach. And, and we've seen all that he, he was involved with. Now, if you today feel far from the Lord, you too aren't far from God's reach. Call upon the Lord today, even if you feel far from his reach. He's not far. One of the hardest things for a sinner to do is to let go of his or her self-dependency and call upon the Lord. I personally feel this way often, even as a Christian, it's a spiritual war when it comes to prayer and going before the Lord constantly and not getting caught up in, the, in, in my day with the assumption that I can complete everything I need to complete and, and, and rely on myself and my strength. Yet it's silly to assume that our source of strength comes from anything else besides God. And so for Samson to uh, abandon his vow and abandon God, in, in the ways that he has, um, is that silly assumption that our strength comes from anyone else but God, or anything else but God. And like Samson, and like Israel, we too need to be reminded where our strength comes from.
the scope of this chapter is still the same as, as every chapter and every, every part of the book of Judges. Along with the whole uh, of, of the scope of Scripture, it's still the same that each judge who is raised up is a judge that accomplishes his task temporarily but fail at its fullest realization. So they, God raises up these judges and they complete the task that the Lord has um, you know, willed for them. But they always fail at the fullest realization of these tasks. Therefore, each cycle of Israel's history is merely a pointer to the fact that man is still sinful and in need of a great savior. And sin is still the ultimate problem. And we see that through all these stories. Uh, judges come up and they rule. There's peace temporarily, but uh, it goes away. And even those who God raises are still sinners. And again, the ultimate problem is sin. And we see it through, through these uh, examples in Judges. Sin is still the ultimate pro- problem. However, Christ enters the world to solve this problem once and for all as a true and greater judge. Uh, so that's, that's really the scope of judges, but it's also the scope of all of Scripture. Everything uh, is sort of pointing to the reality that sin is the problem, but Christ is the solution. And all the men that God uses through judges and through the history of Israel are merely just a pointer to what Christ ultimately does on the cross. So that concludes uh, chapter 16. Next week we'll continue our study uh, in chapters 17 and 18. Uh, any questions or comments or thoughts? Yeah. It's interesting that 15 ends way the other judges end. Yeah. Where it says that Samson rules one year. Right. And then six, so you would expect to go to the next year. Right. how the Philistines were outside of the gate waiting. Mm. And it says nothing about when he ripped off the, the, the entire doors and yeah. the doorposts and being, what did all the Philistines do that were there? Yeah. Did they run? Did he kill them all? We don't know. Right. But I think more importantly than anything, I was looking at this and was thinking about the Ten Commandments. He placed himself ahead of God. Mm. He... Uh, was with women who had graven idols, and he made his own strength an idol. Right. Uh, we don't know about the Sabbath, but he was a murderer, he was a fornicator, adulterer, he was a liar, he was disobedient to his parents, and a thief, and he coveted. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't almost anything that he didn't break. <laughs> right. I mean, and, and um, it's interesting in the, in the next couple of chapters how all the rest of just as we're looking at him as a, as a type of Israel. Right. But when you stop and think, uh, he broke everything. Yeah, he really did. Yeah. And uh, in contrast, you see uh, just how Christ did not break, not one. And uh, just uh, how that points to, I mean, God using these men who were sinners, and yet uh, 
still failing at the ultimate task that will bring about true peace. Uh, we see how Christ, in contrast, doesn't sin. Let me get in first. I think it's interesting to note, we can see the pride in his attitude, mm -hmm. especially with um, when he woke up and he said, I will go on his other times. He didn't even think about it. <laughs> That's true. You know, yeah. I will go to his other times and, and, and shake myself free. And then even when he got caught and his eyes were gouged out, when he prayed, he was praying to the Lord, please remember me and strengthen me only this once I may be avenged in the Philistines for my eyes. Right. It wasn't repentance. That's right. Yeah. It was it was get even. That's right. And, you know, so and God still used that. Yeah. But I didn't see the repentance there either. So yeah. Very true. That's okay. Do you have I'll get you next one. Yeah. I think as we are talking about disobedience um, yeah. all the time, yeah. and, uh, we sometimes we pray and uh, we, uh, our expectation, and sometimes and many times um, we need the grace of the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, even in our even in our worst moments, the fact that the Lord would answer prayers. I mean, I I've personally seen how God has answered prayers at moments when I know, even while I was praying, that I I don't deserve this. You know, this is this is my worst time to be praying to you, Lord. But and He comes through. Um, so it's it's interesting how uh, God's compassion is not based on our performance. Um, you know, even even. Even in salvation, uh, there wasn't a point where he sympathized for us because we were better than maybe the day before yesterday. Or uh, he, he just, it, it all depended on his compassion. Um, it seems random, but scripture says that he loved us, uh, you know, before we could ever do good or bad, so to speak. And so even his response, even his response to our calling out to him in times of trouble, um, it's at his own love and, you know, compassion, and that's still a mystery to me, but it's evident in history uh, that that's how he's always acted, so he's a gracious God. So. And this has been a, a favorite Bible story for yeah. Mm. Uh, just, just as a whole, he, he, he is 
Sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, very true. That's crazy. my mind that he's counted with these uh, other saints yeah amen any other comment or thought good okay let me go ahead and pray our father we thank you for your word Uh, we see in this account the story of Samson and the way in which you still accomplish your goals through him Lord you You've chosen this tragic situation and proven that you have not been absent in the midst of troubles, but rather you've remained near and attentive to his cry. And Lord, for this, we thank you. You're both a transcendent God, but you're also near. And for us who are in Christ, Lord, you aren't only near, but you call us sons, Lord, and we call you Father, and we thank you for that uh, privilege. And we thank you for this, um, showing your uh, love and compassion, um, and it's something that speaks to us, Lord, that uh, we, we see that this is part of your character, and we thank you for that reality. And we thank you that uh, you are always there, Lord, uh, in the midst of our troubles, that we, uh, we can call upon you, Father. We thank you for Christ for accomplishing what he did, Lord, bringing us near to you so that we have this um, relationship with you, Father. Uh, Sinners who are grace recipients, uh, and there's nothing that we bring to the table except for the sin, Um, but you have uh, granted mercy and grace in our lives so that we uh, can once again be restored in that relationship, Lord. So we thank you for Christ, and we thank you for this uh, illustration that we've seen here in this passage. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.